In the beginning, it was something few people had heard of and fewer understood. They call themselves the alt-right. This alternative group of conservatives. The newly coined alt-right. They may not have a leader or a political program, but they do have causes and interests that overlap. Mostly white, male, blue-collar, rural or red state. White ethno-nationalist. Anti-Semitic. Hate racist, countercultural, anti-establishment. With the central belief that white identity is essentially under attack. They've become very difficult for people to nail down and define as a political movement. Members also reject establishment conservatism. The movement coalesced beyond the fringes of the Internet, with websites and radio hosts claiming to understand and speak for its followers. And then a wave of attention hit because of its ties to the Republican presidential nominee and his new campaign CEO. Is Donald Trump a member of the alt-right? Call Trump the emperor. Trump has found common cause with a fringe political movement that most Americans have never heard of. Many of them read or write for Breitbart News, whose erstwhile chairman, Steve Bannon, is now in charge of the Trump campaign as its CEO. Hillary Clinton's decision to call out the alt-right by name and say it had infected the Republican Party with a new strain of hate either brought the alt-right movement, if it is a movement, into the sunlight, or she was feeding the trolls, depending on your point of view. She hit Trump on the support he receives from the so-called alt-right movement. Clinton painted Trump as the leader of a new, vast right-wing conspiracy. Taking a hate movement mainstream. A fringe element that has effectively taken over the Republican Party. Clinton has been cheered in some corners for exposing the darker aspects of the alt-right to the greater world. But guess who's really excited about all this new attention the alt-right is getting? The alt-right itself. Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. Today we're going to be looking at the alt-right what it is, why Hillary Clinton has decided to call it out, whether it exists in other countries outside America. On a very basic level, Clinton's obviously calling out a movement that has overtones of xenophobia and nationalism and racism as well. Politically, she's trying to tie Donald Trump to the most repellent elements of all that. There are certainly historic and modern-day precedents for this kind of thing, both here and abroad. And in every case, you see that leaders have to do a kind of risk-benefit analysis. In the most extreme sense, you could look at it as either standing up to hatred or, quote-unquote, negotiating with the terrorists. So what is the alt-right, and how do politicians and leaders actually deal with it? Joining us now from Washington is Bill Kristol. As editor of The Weekly Standard, he's a noted voice in conservative thought and a longstanding critic of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Bill, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, you've been out front in telling conservatives to reject Donald Trump. And as a result, you have a certain personal familiarity with the so-called alt-right and with Breitbart News, which has pushed a lot of those ideas under Steve Bannon, who now works directly for the Trump campaign. Uh, I believe they came up with a, a particular name for you in a headline, even something along the lines of, quote unquote, renegade Jew. Well, look, it's not a matter of getting something out of the way or being cute about it. I mean, Breitbart News is the kind of website that thinks it's appropriate to attack someone by his uh, on the grounds of race or religion or ethnicity. So they thought it was amusing. And I maybe some other people thought it was amusing when they ran, ran a very stupid piece attacking me because uh, as someone who's incidentally been quite pro-Israel for all of my career, uh, as, as betraying Israel because I wasn't supporting Donald Trump for some reason, they thought it was cute to headline it, Renegade Jew. 
But it's I don't care and I didn't pay any attention to it and I really didn't react to it. Uh, I care in the sense that I think it debases our political discourse and it would debase it just as much if they had called David Brooks or David Fromm or you know a million other friends of mine, renegade Jew or, or, for, that, or for that matter, if they had insulted Christianity or other religions. It says something about the mode of thought at a place of, or the mode of discourse at a place like Breitbart News. It's not new. You know, we had Ron Paul running for president here and he got some votes in 2008 and 2012 on the Republican side. We had Pat Buchanan 20 years ago, got a lot of votes actually, uh, who dabbled on the fringes, I would say, of anti-Semitism and and other kinds of bigotry. So uh, all countries have some of that on both, I would say, right and left. Bill, do you think there's anything new in what people call the alt-right or do you think it's all kind of reheated um, white nationalism, bits of white supremacism, bits of anti-Semitism and so on, which are kind of really old old themes, actually kind of more so in European history actually than in American. Yeah, one of the striking things I think is how Europeanish the the ideology of the alt-right is and how much the sentiments mirror what, what we're used to of here in America, thinking of as a kind of classic European right-wing, quasi-fascist, authoritarian, demagogic, populist movements. We've been, we haven't been spared them. We've had George Wallace. We've had Joe McCarthy. We've had, as I say, Pat Buchanan. We've had Ron Paul. So it's a little bit of, uh, it would be typically American to think we've, we haven't had that to deal with. But we've always been sort of spared it in, a actual, in terms of taking over an actual party. Or I don't think that's the case here either, but of, of at least producing an actual mainstream uh, you know, presidential nominee of one of the two parties. So, yeah, I don't think it's very new intellectually. Obviously, you know, it's hit upon a couple of themes that seem to resonate a little more in 2016 than they have in the past after the global financial crisis, after a couple of tough wars, uh, after, you know, income stagnation among an awful lot of the working class and middle class. And so, I, yeah, but I agree. I think any intelligent observer of European or American politics for the last 50, 70 years wouldn't be very surprised to read these pieces at Breitbart News and elsewhere, they'd find them quite familiar. So as far as Hillary Clinton's decision to uh, to highlight the alt-right by name, and, and I was just curious as to your thoughts on on the bigger picture there, which is sort of how do you denounce a movement like that without giving it uh, sort of a spotlight on the world stage? Is that, I mean, is there a, a risk there in some way? You know, look, Steve Bannon is the CEO of the of the Trump campaign and Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party of the United States. I think it would be a little weird to ignore it or I don't want to give them more attention. Now, and I think it was probably pretty effective of Hillary Clinton to read headlines from Breitbart News to quote Trump. And the main thing is to quote Trump himself, obviously not to quote a bunch of advisors, but to say these are the kind of people he surrounds himself with as well. And and uh, this is a kind of climate that he encourages. Um, I don't, you know, the charge of extremism is always worked when there's some evidence for it pretty well in American politics. I mean, we are, you know, Americans really shy away from extremists have at least traditionally, certainly at the presidential level, not in every congressional race, but at the presidential level have shied away from extremists on right and left. In a way, that's one of the defining things about American politics, isn't it? Over the, you know, 50 years or 150 years, this is actually when political scientists coined the term American exceptionalism, that's kind of what they meant. No socialism here. Uh, and no sort of right-wing authoritarianism or much or less, less of it, you know. But uh, the way I've been saying it is it looks more like a third world election in a way, you know. You have a, your socialist who hasn't learned anything in 50 years. You have your authoritarian, demagogic, populist, rich guy who, you know, appeals to a lot of uh, anxieties and dissatisfactions and grievances. And then you have Hillary Clinton, the perfect foil for both of them, 
the total insider, family's gotten wealthy off politics, or husband was president. It really looks like, what depresses me the most about it is it looks like a third world election. You know, if you came down from Mars and looked at this election, you'd say, this is Argentina. You know, the insider family that's gotten rich, the socialist, and the right-wing authoritarian demagogue. And one of the things we've been lucky about here in America is we've sort of avoided that to some degree, and, uh, but we didn't succeed in avoiding it in 2016. Bill, with the alt-right, some people make the comparison with the John Birch Society and Bill Buckley's denunciation of them and, you know, order to kind of get lost, get out of the conservative movement, which was really effective at the time. Is it impossible for anybody to do something similar now that anyone can start a blog? You know, nobody is able to, you know, shut down these people's voices. And so is it the case that we're just going to be stuck with them um, on the right in American politics for, for a good time to come, even if Donald Trump goes on to lose? If Trump loses badly, I don't think it's going to be that hard, honestly, to reconstitute a healthier conservatism of the kind I thought we had, frankly, a year and a half ago. It's not as if you look around America and look at these Republican governors and Republican senators and congressmen and think, oh my God, the whole party or the whole conservative movement's gone crazy. There are a lot of very impressive younger members of Congress and governors. Uh, I don't think it was ridiculous of us to think, hey, things were actually in pretty good shape a year and a half ago. But sometimes this happens and they, I guess, elites were out of touch with the public and Trump was a very effective demagogue and and, and a celebrity. One shouldn't underestimate that part of it. I mean, just the pure celebrity part of it helped him a lot. What happens in November is very important. If Trump wins, it's a whole new ball game, obviously. If Trump loses but, but a close race, then I think it's much harder for people like me to say you just got to reject that and the party needs to go back to a healthier form of American conservatism. If he gets crushed, then it's a different story, obviously. Just to go back to uh, John's point, though, for a moment, if we could. I mean, we were talking about uh, the Birch Society and that was before before the anonymity of things like Twitter and, uh, you know, message boards that appear and disappear and, and are hard to trace. I mean, even if Trump loses, does the movement need him anymore, this sort of alt-right movement? I mean, Hillary Clinton described it as a, a sort of a virus infecting the Republican Party. I don't know if you buy that, but uh, do you think that he has lit a fire that does not need him to be around to keep on burning or to uh, to fundamentally change the party. I mean, I don't think it goes away. There are real grievances and problems, some of them legitimate, obviously, and some of them, you know, imagined or exaggerated uh, also, obviously. I, I, I don't quite agree with people who emphasize Twitter and, you know, uh, Facebook and uh, anonymity of, I guess, posts and all that. I mean, uh, first of all, there were always other ways in which people could circulate scurrilous rumors in the past. And indeed, what, what was the heyday of this kind of thing? Joe McCarthy in the 50s, way before the internet, uh, the Birch Society itself, uh, George Wallace. I mean, racism didn't require anonymous, you know, the ability to, to tweet. So I, I'm, I'm not – and in some ways, you could even argue the free flow of information that we have now – helps discredit a lot of things much faster as well. You can't have sort of five years of McCarthyism anymore because there'd be instant fact-checking and uh, pushback against all the, you know, all the excessive or just false claims. Maybe that's too optimistic a view of our current media situation, but I, I don't know that that's really the problem. It's a very interesting question. How serious is the problem? I mean, let's put it that way. Are we looking at a fluky one-off election where there were 17 candidates, Trump was effective, he was very lucky to get Jeb Bush as his foil at the beginning, he was lucky that Walker blew up, uh, Rubio turned out not to be as strong as people hoped. 
He wins the nomination. He gets about 35% of the vote in a lot of the early primaries, but that's enough to win some winner-take-all primaries. Uh, he's up against Hillary Clinton, who's extremely weak. So now he's only five, six points behind in the general election. But he's probably going to lose. And it's not as if a lot of little Trumpites are showing up. You know what I mean? If you have a big movement like this, usually you get a lot of people running for Congress and at local levels and you know, you, you people emerging as kind of celebrities who are in that spirit. I, I don't really see that that much. But maybe that's too optimistic. Maybe he's tapped into something much deeper. Maybe he won't lose that badly. I just think very hard to tell at this point. The argument for it against going away, which of course you know, is that if you look at what happened in the primaries this time, they revealed a preference on the part of GOP primary voters and that politicians tend to imitate success. You know, the next presidential GOP primary, which seems like a long time away, um, people will be able to look back and see that there is this kind of Trump path to the nomination and somebody will be, you know, kind of ruthless enough to seize it. What do you think of that thesis? I think it's possible, but I would just say my, my only – the main argument against it, I think, is one underestimates the degree to which Trump's celebrity status, huge fame, 14 years on a highly ranked television show, a famous businessman for 30, 40 years, a little harder to demonize. If, if Trump were, I don't know, Nigel Farage, let's say, from Britain or Le Pen or any of these characters in Britain, you know, you'd say, well, this is a kind of a one-trick pony. The guy's been doing this for 20 years. Um, he's got a little more support now than he used to have, but at the end of the day, it's going to be limited. What made Trump so effective is he could stand up and say, hey, I'm a really successful businessman. I'm not some – I'm a celebrity. I'm kind of a colorful playboy type personality. I don't look like your typical sort of alt-right crusader who has a slight whiff about him of crankiness or kookiness, right? And that really helped Trump a huge amount. Are there other Trumps around? I mean, of course, there are people who – there are going to be wannabe Trumps. But again, it's very interesting. It's an interesting question, and this is why history is so indeterminate. It may just have been a, a one-off perfect storm. So, what does this say then about about Hillary Clinton? I mean, do you feel like she took this on because it was it was politically expedient yet explainable as 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 a moral stance, or because some people? Uh, you know, we're very excited to hear her take on the alt-right. And some of the people who were most excited about it were people on the alt-right. It was very legitimizing for them. And you literally saw, uh, you know, news sites and, and tweets and message boards saying, you know, we've made it. She's going to talk about us. Everybody's going to know who we are. Um, you know, so is this sort of a, a moral an heroic thing to do, or is this sort of negotiating with the terrorists? No, I think it was the right thing to do, and I think she did it for a combination of good reasons. I mean, you know, moral reasons, if you want to call it that. That she was generally, she's generally, genuinely appalled by them, uh, and tactical, political reasons. She thought she could, it would help her to remind, tell people about the kind of people Trump is surrounding himself with. We'll see how it plays out. I, I just think one can't underestimate, though, how weak a candidate she is. And it's unfortunate, frankly. I'd much prefer if, – if a Democrat's going to win, I'd prefer the Trump would get crushed and I'd prefer it would be a Democratic fresh face. You've got an electorate that really wants change. Two-thirds of the country, more than two-thirds, thinks we're on the wrong track. It's a classic change election. And that puts Hillary Clinton in a tough position because she is the farthest thing from a change candidate. And I think she's not done a very good job. She can attack the all right all she wants. She has to persuade voters somehow that they're not just getting more of the same. I mean, she might still stagger to victory with that because more of the same might be regarded as as uh, preferable to the degree of risk that Trump involves. But I am worried that actually 
she's not doing enough to convey even some sense of change, some sense of attentiveness to people's concerns and anxieties. And that's why this race is a little closer than it should be. He's been running a horrible campaign. He's surrounds himself with all these unacceptable people, and he's still only five, six points down. So you're voting for Hillary Clinton then? I, I, I thought I'd, I can't believe I'm saying this. I never thought I'd be saying this, but I actually wish the, the Democratic candidate in this instance were a stronger candidate who could make a genuine liberal case. I mean, in a way, frankly, as a conservative, I would say it suggests the exhaustion of liberalism, that the choice is Hillary Clinton, which is really a status quo, kind of corporatist liberal vision on the one hand, or Bernie Sanders, an out-of-date socialist vision on the other. I mean, liberals, do liberals have anything much to say about how to help working class, you know, uh, Americans who are in industries that are declining? Do they have much to say about fixing the education system? Uh, Obamacare is doing badly. Do they have a serious proposal to to improve it? I mean, I, I think actually if I were a liberal looking at this, they're going to probably win this year. So the, and we have a bigger problem on the right with Trump than they have right now. But I, I don't think liberalism is exactly in, in, in the pink of health either. So what do conservatives do now? I think serious conservatives have to... Uh, not support Trump and make clear we have two months here where there'll be a huge amount of attention to the presidential race. And I think they have to make clear that both as a matter of character and temperament and as a matter of policy positions on trade, immigration, foreign policy, other issues, that conservatism has a view of both of standards and politics in terms of character and behavior and also of policies that isn't Trump. I mean, obviously, the huge danger is that uh, you're a 25-year-old and you've just begun following politics and it's your second election to vote in, perhaps, and you think, if conservatism is Trump, that's that's terrible. I mean, that would be terrible, obviously, uh, for the Republican Party, for conservatism, and, and, and I think for the country. So I think we have a big obligation to, you know, be strong against Trump, but also to lay out, obviously, what the conservative agenda is on all these different issues. So is that a yes or a no on voting for Hillary Clinton? <laughs> I think I prefer to vote for uh, Evan McMullen, a very fine 40-year-old man who served the country well as an intelligence operator, operative, who's a conservative, who's going to be on the ballot in several states. Uh, I think I'm in the protest vote category this year. Bill Crystal is the editor of The Weekly Standard. Bill, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to go now to Tom Nuttall, who's The Economist's Charlemagne correspondent, which means he writes a column about European politics. Tom is a keen observer of the right in Europe, where there's some similar things going on to the alt-right in the US, this strange mixture of sort of uh, hostility to multiculturalism and immigration, some skepticism about democracy. Um, and also, I think another thing that's part of the alt-right is is uh, hostility to feminism. You know, there's an overlap with, with the manosphere, which is something we've written about a bit in The Economist. Tom, you're a former uh, resident of California, and you know your way around American politics as well as European politics. Does this stuff about the alt-right um, resonate in Europe? Do you see similar things going on in countries that you cover from, from Brussels? Um, to an extent, I mean, I think it's probably worth disentangling some of the elements of, of what I understand to be the alt-right. I mean, across many European countries, as you will know, we have political movements, um, political parties that are doing very well on anti-immigration platforms, um, anti-elitist platforms, anti-multiculturalism platforms. Um, I think another feature that a lot of these sorts of movements or parties share with the so-called alt-right movement in the US is their um, use of social media 
whether it's simply uh, I, I reported on the refugee crisis in Europe last year quite widely, and I was struck by how often talking to refugee groups or NGOs, whatever, um, when I would ask them about the sort of political context that they were working in, how often they would talk about their surprise at the virulence of the um, of the messages that they would see online and in sort of comments boxes underneath newspaper articles or their Facebook posts or something like that. Um, and similarly, movements like Pegida, which is an anti-Islam um, sort of street movement in Germany, sort of lives first and foremost online um, organizes a lot of its events that way and of course you know a lot of these movements have had um, a good deal of political success particularly in northern Europe from Geert Wilders in the Netherlands to Marine Le Pen in France and Sweden Democrats there's a whole host of parties that have done well by co-opting some of the messages that you sometimes get from the alt-right in the US but then I think there are also very important differences the most important one to my mind would be that, in a sense, I mean, if I understand the notion of the, the kind of alt part of alt-right correctly, it's, it's this notion that the sort of the traditional right, the GOP, has let down true conservative voters, sort of gone native. It's kind of drunk the Washington Kool-Aid and here's the sort of the genuine unadulterated article. And therefore, if you have some, someone like Trump to gain any political traction, needs to um, essentially affect a takeover with the Republican Party. Now, because of the voting systems in European countries, most of which have some form of proportional representation, you don't need to do that. You can simply start up your own party. And that's what you've seen. Um, and most of the, the countries that I mentioned before, you still have a, an established centre-right, perhaps Christian Democrat party. And then you also have to its right, um, a sort of a nationalist, an anti-immigrant, an anti-EU party causing trouble. And of course, and the final difference, of course, is that we're talking here about a whole bunch of countries speaking a whole bunch of different languages, and that that gives you a sort of a whole set of structural difficulties in setting up some sort of movement that, that you don't have in, in the US. So yes, some similarities, but I think probably to my mind, the differences are more significant. Tom, one of the things that seems distinctive to me about the alt-right in the US is that it's sort of an attempt to give an intellectual coherence to populism in some ways. So it's um, a college-educated spin on white supremacy or white nationalism that says, you know, kind of white European culture is superior, needs to be defended, multiculturalism doesn't work, and so forth. But it's all couched in, in quite sort of intellectual language. Do you get something similar in Europe? In, if you look at someone like Marine Le Pen, say, are there people who pose as you know, National Front, Front National sort of intellectuals trying to perform the same thing, trick of, of sort of making something that to a lot of Europeans would seem not respectable, make that thing seem respectable. Yeah, um, parties like hers and, and several others across Europe, I think, do rather better gaining political purchase with a sort of anti-intellectual message, a kind of anti-elite message. In fact, I'm often quite struck by looking at some of the the blogs and, and, and news websites that I suppose might be considered part of the alt-right in America, at how often it is that they use kind of European developments or European news stories as their sort of foundational material. I mean, it's a sense of, you know, look at what's happening there. If we don't watch out, it's going to be happening here. Probably the most striking example is, is what um, Angela Merkel decided to do last year in opening Germany's doors to um, over a million asylum seekers. 
um, suggesting that Merkel is essentially destroying Germany's and by extension Europe's Christian or Judeo-Christian heritage. And of course, if America starts letting in, you know, millions of Syrian refugees, as Hillary Clinton wants to, then we'll see exactly the same thing happening here. In some ways, you almost have the feeling that the direction of kind of intellectual travel is in the opposite direction. It's not sort of coming from America over to Europe. So a lot of these ideas obviously have been discredited. Uh, but as you were saying, I mean, ultra-nationalist type figures have been successful in, in certain areas of Europe. So I guess, do you see, do you see that going away? Is there a backlash? Um, I mean, first of all, in several countries, these parties have been part of the political furniture for quite a long time now. And they have made, amongst other things, they've made the, um, the formations of political coalitions that much harder. That said, there are certainly, I suppose, sort of contingent features of the political landscape that have contributed to the recent growth of some of these parties. The refugee crisis is, is obviously the, the biggest and the most important one and the sort of the chaos that we had the last year and the feeling, the feeling that, some, um, uh, that some voters had um, that they were sort of staring into infinity, that there was going to be no end to this thing. And that was a feeling that some parties and some politicians were very happy to capitalise on. Um, it's not just about immigration. That's a large part of it in many cases. It's an anti-elite message. Um, and, here, and here is where you have some of those resonances with America, I think. It's about those guys in the capitals or those guys in Brussels who are not paying attention to what the ordinary... Um, man or woman wants. Um, it's about scepticism on globalization and people who um, who who have suffered from from trade deals or from immigration. And that's uh, that's a message that slots into. It's a message that resonates because of because of sort of structural features of of politics and economics. So I don't expect that you're going to see, you know, even if you do see sort of growth start to pick up in Europe, even if you do see, even if the, the sort of refugee flows are maintained at their current low level, I don't think you can expect to see these parties disappear from the scene. I think um, most of them are probably here to stay. All right, Tom Nuttall in Brussels, thank you very much. No problems. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. Join us next time on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Special Relationship. We were produced by our new team member, Zach Mack. Thank you, Zach. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to really help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike, and I'm Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. And I'm John Prudeau at The Economist or at John Prudeau on Twitter. See you next time. Listener.